Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lightspeed. Hello there, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. Before we get to this week's story, I'd like to throw out another reminder about the re-release of John Joseph Adams' dystopian fiction anthology, Brave New Worlds. It's a revised, expanded edition, which you can get more information about at johnjosephadams.com slash brave-new-worlds. Also, to reiterate, I'm only the host of the podcast. The stories are produced by Skyboat Road Company, Inc., run by Audi and Grammy Award winner Stefan Rudnicki, in association with Rajan Khanna, who narrates the story that we have for you this week. Our next offering for the December issue is Dreams in Dust by D. Thomas Minton. D. Thomas Minton tells people that he lives with his wife and daughter in a grass hut on the beach of a tropical Pacific island. But only some of that is true. When not writing, he gets paid to play in the ocean, travel to remote places, and help people conserve coral reefs. His fiction has been published in Asimov's Lightspeed and Daily Science Fiction. His idle ramblings hold court at dthomasminton.com. And that does it for this week's intro. So without further ado, let's make the jump to light speed. Dreams in Dust by D. Thomas Minton The arrival of the dust-covered girl caught Caraf by surprise. The girl's slender face, sun-beaten to a deep brown, blended seamlessly into the cloth wrapped around her head. She couldn't have been more than seventeen, but she wielded her rifle with ease. Caraf didn't even try for his own rifle slung over his shoulder. Shooting her would be a waste of his last bullet, because she didn't appear to have a canteen. My sand sled got demasted four days ago, he said in response to her unspoken question. His tongue, dry and dusty, made it difficult to speak. I have things I can trade for water. Her eyes roved over Caraf's gauzy robes, his kafia wrapped around the lower half of his face, his rifle, the narrow metal cylinder at his waist, and the empty water bag slung over his back. I could just shoot you, she said. With roles reversed, Caraf might have said the same. In the wastes of the Atlantic Basin, bandits outnumbered honest men. He didn't think she would believe him, but told her what he thought was the truth. I'm carrying something that could save the earth. Nothing can save the earth, the girl said. Water can. Caraf thought he saw the tip of her rifle dip, but the sun was strong and the shadows stark. The girl's eyes narrowed. Start walking and don't try anything. I've deaded better liars than you. The girl led him across the dunes to an earthen embankment. Caraf hadn't realized it was there until he was upon it. The mound of earth blended with the beige and umber monotony of the rippled dunescape. They were met by a boy covered more in sand than clothing. After a whispered exchange with the girl, the boy set off running up and over the hill. Caraf waited with the girl, collecting a thicker skin of dust. 
After a few minutes, the boy returned with a bundle of cloth-wrapped poles slung over his shoulder. A stoneware bottle bounced from a cord against his left thigh. He gave the girl the bottle, then set about erecting a canopy from the poles. The girl's lips glistened when she lowered the bottle. Karaf watched the water evaporate. He licked cracked lips with his sandpaper tongue. Six swallows, he had counted, more than a day's ration in the lamissary. He unslung his water bag and dropped it in the sand at the edge of the canopy. It wasn't any cooler in the shade, but at least he was out of the sun. The girl eyed him but said nothing. She shared the same fine bones and gold-flecked eyes as the boy. A family compound then, Karaf thought, hidden somewhere over the embankment. They couldn't have had more than a condenser or two, but maybe a trade was still possible. After a few minutes, an older man and woman came over the embankment and down the sand face. The woman carried a naked toddler on her hip. When the girl saw them, she ran to meet them and exchanged her rifle for the little boy. As they came into the shade, Karaf pushed his shoulders back and rose up to his full height. The man peeled his checkered kafea aside to reveal cheeks covered with coarse gray stubble and skin pitted from where the cancers had been cut away. In his hands, he carried another stoneware bottle capped with a small metal cup. He wiped the dust from inside of the cup with the sleeve of his robe and poured a finger of water. He extended it to Karaf. Karaf pressed his palms together and touched his fingertips to his forehead. Your water is life, he murmured. When he reached for the cup, the old man pulled it back. Your face, he said. I want to see who drinks our water. Karaf unclipped his kafia, exposing his face. Even though the air was hot, it felt cool on his black skin. The mark of the mechanists, the man said, nodding at the metal ankh hanging at Karaf's throat. We don't see many of your kind here. He extended the cup a second time. I am called Farouk, he said. You have met Imani, my grandniece. He motioned to the girl with a toddler in her arms. The child's top lip was split from his mouth to his nose, a defect of birth. Karaf had seen such deformities in small enclaves before. It gave him hope that the one thing he could trade had value. Karaf stared down into the water and forced himself to sip. It cooled his burning tongue. He licked every drop of moisture from his lips before tipping the last of the water into his mouth. He handed the cup back to Farouk. I am Karaf, he said, now that his throat was lubricated. Your water is life. I owe you my life. Farouk handed the cup to the little boy in Amani's arms. The boy's slender red tongue snapped in and out through the cleft in his lip, licking dry the beads of water that clung to the metal. Karaf found it difficult not to stare. I am on a mission to Costa de Santo, he said, pulling his eyes from the toddler. Four days ago, my sled capsized crossing the mid-Atlantic mountains. What water I had was lost. I seek water so I can complete my mission. Farouk's eyes narrowed. We have no water to spare. Karaf did not expect anyone to give him water. A single condenser could produce a gallon a day from the basin's arid atmosphere, enough for only a handful of people and a few plants. I can trade, he said. I carry a fully functional uric acid modification enhanced melanin, and high-efficiency sweat glands. The genetic modifications had become fixed in the Earth's human population prior to the final dewatering by the orbitals, but small enclaves could regress through inbreeding. My semen is worth a few days of water. It's worth nothing if we dry out. 
From Farouk's expression, Karaf could not tell if the man was simply negotiating. The Atlantic Basin was isolated, and opportunities to maintain his clan's genetic viability could not have presented themselves often, pressing the issue this early in a negotiation could offend. You have the advantage, Karaf said. My rifle is worth something, as is my water bag. I'm willing to work for a ration. Farouk looked unimpressed. I beg your compassion. My mission is important. He says he carries something that could save us, Imani said. The toddler squirmed in her arms and she set him down. The boy hid behind her robes and poked his tongue out at Karaf through the cleft. The earth is dead, Farouk said. Those who believe otherwise are chasing fantasies in the dust. What if he speaks the truth? We can spare... Farouk hissed, and the girl fell silent. The toddler started to cry. The tears on his cheek made Karaf's mouth water. Imani knelt and pulled the boy into her arms, quieting him. She collected his tears on her fingertips and put them in her mouth. Karaf pretended to ignore the exchange, even as his mind tried to construct what Imani had intended to say. Could they spare water? No one could spare water, for there was none to spare. Let me show you. Karaf slowly unclipped the metal cylinder from his belt and unscrewed the cap on one end. These are copies of a document discovered by my order. Karaf removed a tube of handmade paper and carefully unrolled it. It was covered with intricate lines and neat blocks of hand-printed text. It is a plan for a deep drilling machine, but my lamissary lacks the resources to construct it. The mechanist court at Costa di Santo can build it, and if they do, they can bring water to the surface. Farouk studied the document for a moment, but Karaf suspected the man could not decipher it. Without water, industrialization and the skills associated with it had collapsed. Other than condensers, little remained from the wet earth. Farouk's lips pulled downward into a frown. He waved the paper aside. The deep ocean? A myth. I won't spend time looking at what I don't have, only to lose sight of what I do. My granny should do the same for her son. We cannot help you. We have no water to spare. Please, I am at your mercy. Karaf reached for Farouk, but the man stepped back. Farouk pushed aside a fold of his robe to reveal a revolver in his belt. It's best you be on your way. Imani grabbed her great-uncle's arm. You talk of the future, but my son has no... Farouk pulled his arm free. Enough! Imani lowered her face. How long will your condensers last? Karaf tried to keep the desperation out of his voice. Hours run on sweat and prayer. Out here it must be... An odd sound drew Karaf's eyes to the toddler. The boy was peeing on the sand. Karaf dropped the paper. His eyes grew wide. You have found water, he whispered as he fell to his knees. Farouk drew the pistol from his belt. In a single fluid motion, he leveled it at Karaf's chest. Karaf could not take his eyes off the arc of lemon-yellow water. The toddler did not have the genetic modification to produce uric acid instead of urine. He would need over a gallon of water a day to survive, yet he lived. The toddler finished peeing, and Imani scooped him into her arms. Karaf watched the puddle sink into the dust. He ached to hold the wet sand in his hands. Farouk pulled back the hammer on his revolver. Don't, Uncle, Imani said. He will bring others. They will take what we have. But the drilling machine? Those drawings are probably not even real, Farouk said. 
a ruse to steal water from our mouths. Already the seep gives less than it once did. If the paper he carries can bring back the water... Imani squeezed the toddler in her arms. The boy squirmed but could not slip free. Caraf stared, no longer seeing the toddler's cleft lip. Your child is the future, he said. One where we have enough water to wet the ground with our urine. He looked up the revolver's barrel, past the three bullets arrayed in the chambers. I have dedicated my life to bringing water back to the world, he said. I have heard it used to fall from the sky. I have never seen such a thing, but I dream that our children will. If you shoot me, at least deliver these plans to Costa de Santo. I believe they can save us. Baruch's eyebrows pinched together. Why do you believe? If I do not, then everything is just dust. Garaf waited for the bullet. He imagined a heaven with cool rain. The pistol wavered. The last time I saw the rain, I was a small boy, Farouk said. We ran outside with pots and plates and cloths. Anything that could hold water. It rained for less than a minute. Only a fine mist, really, but enough to dampen my face. He touched his cheeks as if wiping moisture from them. I will never forget that. Caraf licked his lips, trying to imagine what rain would taste like. Sometimes it is hard not to lose hope, he said. Farouk lowered the revolver. Hope is a powerful thing. He picked up the paper at his feet, carefully rolled it, and handed it back to Caraf. Come. Caraf followed Farouk up the embankment, leaving the others to dismantle the canopy. As he crested the top, Caraf stopped. Below, in the dusty trough, a dozen dome-shaped dwellings ringed a small greenhouse. Through beads of water sparkling on the greenhouse glass, Caraf saw a pool of water nestled among green leaves. He drew an audible breath. Without hope we are dust, Farouk said. Before you leave, we will share water. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the tale. If so, and if you find the time, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. And if you haven't already subscribed to Lightspeed Magazine, please take a moment to consider it and check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. We also hope you'll check out Lightspeed Year One, a collection of audio stories from this podcast's first Hugo-nominated year. Look for it at audible.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Cheers from all of us at Lightspeed Magazine. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.